Welcome to Assembly Point, a brand new monthly podcast by the Fire Protection Association. The devastating circumstances of the Grenfell Tower tragedy brought the subject of fire safety into sharp focus. But has anything changed since that day in 2017? What is being done to ensure that everyone involved in the design, construction and management of buildings, as well as those who occupy them, understands their role in minimising the risks? Our host for the series is Howard Passy, the FPA's Director of Operations and respected fire industry professional. From legislative change, updated guidance and improving safety standards to the need for greater education and training, join us as we talk with experts and influencers from across industries to move the debate on fire safety forwards and identify ways to work together to improve standards. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the FPA's Assembly Point podcast. I'm your host, Howard Passy. It's a real pleasure to be joined today by architect Jane Duncan, OBE. Jane is a former president of the Royal Institute of British Architects, or REBA as we more commonly know it, and is now the chair of its expert advisory group on fire safety. Jane, welcome and many thanks for uh, taking some time out to, to chat with me today. Before we dive a little deeper into the issues pertaining to, to today's podcast, looking at fire safety and building design and material selection and such like. I wondered if you could give us a short overview of the expert advisory group and why you have a particular interest in that area. Well, hello, and thank you very much for allowing me to join your podcast. Um, you've asked me about the expert advisory group on fire safety at the RIBA, um, and this didn't exist before Grenfell. In fact, I was just coming to the end of my two-year presidency of the RIBA when the Grenfell Tower fire happened. Um, and one of my now group members, Sam Webb, phoned me up at 4.30 in the morning and told me to put my television on and watch what was happening. Um, and I, I watched this, this horror. It looked like a film, but I, I've don't, I don't think I'd ever, to be honest, seen anything so grim in my sheltered little life. Um, and I, I still go to sleep thinking about it sometimes. I can't bear the thought of what I saw that morning. And I hope that the entire industry feels exactly the same. But the next morning, um, or maybe a couple of days later, I went into the Institute and spoke to the CEO and said, we need to set up uh, an expert group. I'm going to need to, to be able to talk as the president about uh, the impact of this terrible fire. So we set up uh, the expert group on fire safety and we met so regularly to start with because the pressure was on our shoulders to both speak to government to speak out with what to to what we saw but also to advise members who were without question as i was um frankly having heebie-jeebies about what they saw on this and the implications so that's how it started and um really the, the we had enormous support from RI Bay Council, who at the time were also like us, desperate to do the right thing. Um, and we had a remit, which we decided was important that we wouldn't just focus in on our members, but deal with government and, and the wider industry. Um, so we've been involved in all sorts of government consultations, parliamentary inquiries, um, we've developed guidance um, for the RIBA, for the wider membership and construction industry. So it's been a very, very active group, probably the most active group I've ever been 
and had the pleasure of chairing. Sure. So it was a Grenfell was really a, a call to action for you. It More so than, than anything else. Yes, and I think it has been for, for so many of us um, and the, the industry more widely. But I'm, I'm interested, I suppose, over the years, we've seen several major fire incidents which have led to what at the time were what we saw as significant changes in legislation. But why do you think it is that Grenfell has been so all-encompassing in terms of the need to bring about change and specifically the need for fire safety considerations to be further embedded into building design? I, I think the answer to, to this is, is very multi-layered. It, there isn't an easy, quick answer. Why has it had the impact? Of course, the first thing is it was the most terrible disaster, the worst disaster since the war. And, and you know, pretty nearly everybody in the country either watched it on television or saw it on social media for days and weeks afterwards. So it was very visible. It was part of our lives from the night that it happened. There's no question. You couldn't just put that in a drawer. That wasn't a, the, a report which one could hide away mm. and, and do nothing about. It was there. So I think the, the impact of just what actually happened on the night. And then the, the box, the Pandora's box that opened up when people started actually yeah. looking at what happened has has grown and grown and grown and grown and and not quite culminated but sort of certainly been added to hugely by um, what's been happening at the inquiry mm-hmm. and uh, for those that have watched the inquiry and I've certainly seen a good part of it um, it makes me feel just as ill as watching that awful fire to know and to understand perhaps as most of the people in the construction industry are now understanding what has become of us over maybe the last couple of decades um and with and really really understanding as we do and most parts of the industry do that we've got to change we have to do something very different it's it's as it's as severe as climate change i think it's significant most certainly and 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 i agree with you that the pandora's box has been quite a revelation as various elements have fallen out of it and uh, you know absolutely some really quite shocking some of the um some of the behaviors that we've seen from some involved in the process but thinking about the architectural profession as a starting point i suppose that's one where professionals are are motivated by all kinds of things to create amazing looking buildings to do something completely new and innovative with the uh with the space that they have or to make best use of that space or maybe to progress building sustainability through the design of the building and, um, and and the materials used. But I'm interested in where fire safety comes into this. Um, does your group have a view on how you intend to lead to ensure that uh, fire safety is considered to the degree it needs to be? The first thing I think to say is that an architect's role within the industry is actually much more wide-ranging than just designing great creative buildings. We spend significant amounts of our time organizing and managing and that includes the entire construction team from the start of the project including the client client management management and organization of the team's coordination of their work to whatever level you're asked to do it depending on the size of the project and of course for most smaller uh, practitioners and smaller jobs uh, you know under five million the architect is often the lead designer running the team and also helps the client with a choice of procurement route and contract and can on, can uh, also be a contract administrator. So in other words, 
takes a project from start to finish, including all the management and organisation involved in that, including technical knowledge. I think the second the second part of this is here we have this profession who really want to do better now. Now that we see what we what can we do, and they look most of the chartered architects will look to the RIBA to lead the way out of it, which is why this group is so very important to advise council, to advise the um, executive how best we should lead our profession and help the rest of the in industry, if it's possible for us to join and help to make things change, to make our culture change, to make the way we do things differently. There are lots of things that we're doing within the RIBA. The, the team itself took a decision that we were going to do two things. Within the group, we decided that we were going to be visible and everything that we have done and published, all our thoughts on everything that's happening are now on the website so everybody can read them. And the, the second thing was what they, that we were going to spend as much time as possible in the public eye, talking to government, talking to our members and talking to the construction industry because the, the basics of this, the impact of this Grenfell Tower fire affect everybody and it's there's absolutely no point in architects saying we can lead the way out of this because we can't it has to be right the way across the industry absolutely and i, th I think you know some interesting points there you know to to distill there, there clearly is a, a leadership role as you said in whichever way that um, that manifests um, but it was also interesting to hear your your thoughts on on engagement and being vocal and clearly those opportunities um, have to be grasped with with both hands and it's you know it's 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 really good to see that um you know that's a a proactive approach you're taking to ensure that the message is being is being pushed forward um talking about a a specific um and and broadly well-known um riba product uh, which is the plan of work um it organises the the process of briefing, designing, constructing, and operating building projects into into eight different stages, and and clearly there's been a more recent fire overlay for that. Um, do you think there are stages within this where considering fire safety issues is more essential than others, or or do they all carry an equal weight in that respect? I think um, it's an interesting question, but the the truth is that fire safety strategy has to take a part in. All stages of the work. Well, I mean, right the way from uh, the sort of high-level site appraisal and a feasibility study to inform how the project is going to work in terms of its fire safety strategy. And if you don't start from the very beginning and have a routine to follow it through all the work stages, all the the gateways, if you like, uh, we will be back into the same situation where there is fair, all, all of the areas are, are, are potentially not linked. There's no thread. There's no golden thread as Judith Hackett called it. So you have to say that every part of this has to be integrated, has to be considered. You can't drop off certain things to say these are not so important. Fire safety strategy is vital and everybody needs to understand their places within that. The, the, the plan of work will definitely help that, but unless you understand and you have a competence to understand reading that plan of work is going to get you nowhere what you do have to understand is that every single part of this not just the way that you work but who's involved and the duty holders that are coming in everybody needs to understand how they're integrated clearly there's a you know there, there's a whole new process here um for for all of us engaged in in, in fire safety to really get our heads around um and 
the review that, that Dame Judith Hackett did put an awful lot of pressure on the construction industry and others involved in the process to increase their understanding of fire risks, as well as the importance of using the appropriate materials and systems to maximise safety. So I suppose that all sort of feeds into that, that plan of works approach. But in response to the government's building safety bill, um, which outlined the need for duty holders in the procurement, design and construction of buildings. In your opinion, does this go far enough or could the way these roles are currently structured lead to conflicts of interest? I think the main point I can make is that at least the government is looking into improving the situation and being led by Dame Judith Hackett, who had a, a fantastic oversight and, and a real intuition. But she said some really, really important things to us in her report. She was the one that called for culture change, that saw people gaming the system, that we were dealing with a set of regulations which were not fit for purpose. So there was a requirement for every single part of our industry, including the government. I put the government in, in there as well to, to, to make change. But the Building Safety Bill, well, we welcome the intention of the bill and, and we also understand that in order to make it operate, you need to have delegated duties, people to carry out specific roles within this new regime. Um, and, and the theory is very good. The issue is, I think, that the delegation of the duties, the detail, the scope of how that's going to work is likely to come in secondary legislation. We don't know the detail of that, so the question is how do we prepare? We're already four years in after Grenfell, this is a draft stage. It's hopefully going to be have its first reading before too long. Um, but we don't know the details yet. What we do know is that the requirements of the duty holders are going to be extremely serious. The responsibilities are going to be enormous. But the, the, the principle is good. You just need to make sure that all of these duty holders are brought in, given equal weight, and have a role all the way through. You talked about, uh, is this going to deal with, with uh, conflicts of interest? I'd have to say there are questions that still remain. One of them is about the way that uh, a number, I won't say all, um, design and build contracts operate. I personally think it's not design and build. I think it's, 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 it's the, the, for a lot of this work, and you look at what happened with Grenfell, it's sort of cost cutting and building. Um, it's not design. The design stops. The architect has to work for a contractor. The contractors are um, answerable to their shareholders. Professionals are answerable to the wider society and to their clients. So it's a very different role. I think in order to make this work, it will be really, it's an imperative that the industry looks at the role of supervision by professionals whether they are the duty holders or whether they take part of the duty holders role. But that's very important. And that's needed because at the moment there are conflicts of interest in my view. It's extremely difficult if for instance, um, the fire engineer is not appointed by the client, but in point, appointed by the main contractor in a DNB contract. And what we've seen and I think it's known, I don't think I'm talking out of turn here, but what we've seen are fire engineers doing their very best for the contractor, some cases also for the developer, to cut out um, normal fire strategy design and, 
and this is what Dame Judith Hackett was talking about in terms of gaming the building regulation system because the guidance the guidance is not clear and people have taken advantage. Um, you've also got the issue where you've got the building control officer is not a local authority but a pre-approved inspector also appointed by the main contractor and they are working for somebody who is not a professional. They may be professional at their job but they don't have the, the duties of professionals. Uh, so, I, so I think there are there's potential for significant um, conflict of interest in some cases for DNB procurement and I think procurement as well as all these other issues hasn't really been looked at yet and I think it's very important that we look at it and if we want to go the DNB route we need smart procurement to make that work because at the moment it's anybody's guess whether it is going to give you the legacy of building that we need. It's, it's one of the points that as an organisation we've been pressing, um, maybe from a different perspective, but the the potential for gaming of the system clearly exists and will continue to exist. You know, we, we've seen some changes in um, in guidance with respect to the provision of sprinklers in certain types of premises and the, the height threshold being reduced. Um, but our argument remains that it doesn't matter what height you, you set it at, um, if you don't consider the risk to the occupants of that building effectively, then uh, you might just as well not bother almost, um, you know, because we, we know that so many organisations, whether that be design and build or, or otherwise, will um, will wreck or have recognised that anything over 18 metres needs to, you know, needs a, needs a sprinkler system installed um, for certain types of premises. Uh, and so they they top their buildings out slightly lower than that figure to save themselves that that aggravation and again that that for us doesn't get past the uh, the, the the risk position um, you, you you were talking there about um, the need for smart procurement you were talking also about the need for competent and professional behaviors um, to, to impact and I, I'm aware from your your biography that you've spent time lecturing architects, um, architectural students, um, and the tutors themselves in the importance of designing buildings effectively for fire safety. But how can we ensure that our architects and the construction teams continue to build their competency around fire throughout the lifespan of their careers? And I think one of the criticisms we hear quite commonly is that um, during their their formal studies, architects get very little input on fire safety, but um, I presume that the, some of the work you're doing within your your expert working group is um, is, is looking to address that. It, yes, it is, and it's not just our working group. The the, the RIBA as a whole have started um, very very recently to look at whole life learning, and um, I've come up with a document called uh, "The Way Ahead," which is basically looking at the future of education and learning for competence for architects. In a, in a very much more disciplined way. I'm very, very uh, encouraged by what I'm reading. And the RIBA within this is looking at um, a pathway from the first year that you're a student architect right the way through your career in terms of your professional development um, and having core competencies that you must have uh, spent time on. What The first one of which is health and life safety, including fire safety. And that that is something that um, we looked at and was agreed by council in 2018. We, we sort of jumped straight to it 
understanding very early on in the process that competence was a, a, an issue as indeed we understood the education of students needed to include technical subjects they do in some i mean so, some of our universities are magnificent but unfortunately not all it needs to be all um but the the mandatory competence first one th that's coming into being next year so we've started um, our cpd lectures they're now all over the place everybody's going to be doing these and then um, I hope you're sitting comfortably any architects that are listening to this because you're going to be tested on this every five years. Health and safety and life safety one is going to be the first, then there's going to be sustainability, then there's going to be ethical practice, etc. So we've got a routine now to bring all our duties, all our duty of care to, to the, the wider world, the environment, to the, the public, to those who use the building, to our clients, etc. And to those we work with, that that becomes something that we will understand. We don't have to become fire engineers, by the way, in order to do this, but we need to understand the basics. If we're planning a building in the same way as we now understand how to do a sustainable building, that the first line you draw on a page will make it work because of the um, orientation of the building. We now need to do exactly the same for fire safety. So long as we understand that, we can then know, as we should do, who we need to call in to help us with that. So we don't, we're not saying we're coming, we're becoming fire engineers, quite the contrary. What we're saying is we will need to understand how fire engineers can assist with the right building. I think there's been, you know, there's been plenty of pressure following um, Dame Judith's report with regard to, you know, competency across the piece. And um, I think that that, that step towards re-examination is, uh, you know, clearly a step change for for the industry and um and i suppose maybe brings it into line with with what goes on in in, in other parts i know that as a, a registered fire risk assessor myself i am re-examined on a regular basis um and it's good to see that, that that will be coming through but also some really interesting points that you make there about being able to effectively brief others within the design team um and i think that that will be a you know that will make a big difference and i think all of of what you seem to be doing within the architectural profession and the design community is is driving towards a you know a far greater degree of control. Um, I'd like to touch on now on the process of materials and system specification. How can architects ensure that they specify the right products and the right systems to ensure that fire safety is maximised in a building, particularly given the more prevalent use of, of, of modern materials and, and modern methods of construction? It's something that's been a, a significant concern for, for us as an organisation and with um, the insurers work with through risk authority. I just wondered whether it's something you've been reflecting on within the architectural environment. I think the answer is yes, everything requires review um and if we're not open to reviewing what we do and how we do it we're never going to improve you you, you can't change things by doing the same stuff all the time um so i think there are there are three elements to the answer to your question the first is how do we as architects as specifiers understand um how to to create a, if you like a safe specification um and how do we gain the knowledge about how to identify what is a safe specification and um, what should that include to ensure that we actually can create a safe building? Um, and of course, the start of this, I think, is um, 
regulatory. So if we can start with a clear set of building regulations and lead from that into project specifics like the scope and the wider picture of, of procurement, all of these things have an impact that the form of the contract, how the design responsibility is, is shared or what the duty holders are, uh, what the program is. Sometimes uh, our clients will require a program, which to be honest, would mean you're, you're skipping over and duplicating work. And frankly, we have to rethink the whole process. So we've got the right time and the chronological order in which we can ensure safety. But I, I, I just want to pick up something that you said, which was you wanted to make sure that we were enhancing the safety of premises. Actually, what we want to do is enhance the safety of people. And yes, we need the premises to be safe because it can be people's livelihoods. It can be you know, disastrous for people to lose everything in a fire, and they do. But actually, the most important thing that we saw at Grenfell, going back to our first discussion, is how people were impacted, how um, a fire can make you behave in a very different way, what the long-term implications are. Um, so we do need to think that we're looking at how people are within buildings. Um, and the regulations will definitely um, affect that and how those are dealt with. But the specification in itself, what, I, what affects us as architects, if we're doing that, um, is very much more understanding what all of these different elements of the project process um, can do to impact what you say. So there is one particular point in this process, which is a very now a very, very common um, point in a project, and it's called value engineering. Because an architect always starts with wanting to do the very best for their client, for the society, et cetera, et cetera. They, want them, they may want to make it beautiful, but I mean, in my view, a beautiful building will be one that looks like, you know, it's a bunker, but it works perfectly and does exactly what it's needed to do. Beauty is not necessarily in the eye of the beholder. It can be in the, in the pocket of the, of the client. Um, but actually what we do need to do is to think really, really carefully about how do we approach everything? Um, then we can understand how the specification comes into being and in what point it comes into being. And if you create a specification which you know is going to work, and all of us will want to do that, and it is then past the, 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 the golden thread is cut, and it, even if information goes with that um, in a digital format, as the government is now requesting, it isn't necessarily follow through because this lovely term, value engineering, which in my own professional opinion is neither value nor very good engineering, um, can end up taking the quality and can take out, in some cases, the safety from the product. So we, this is very important and it's part of making sure that you consider cost, value, um, procurement, all of these things at a very early stage so you understand what the project is going to achieve in the end. But there's, there's one final thing and that is Every architect and most people within the industry have to specify products. And we absolutely have to know that we have unambiguous technical information with real detail, sufficient detail of the material and who's producing it and how it has been tested and by whom. You cannot spend your entire life as an architect researching whether or not the 
people who have put a product out in the market have not been totally honest. We have to have honesty. We have to have, we have to be able to rely on the construction product industry to get it right, to ensure us, to assure us, I should say, that we can rely on them. Every, this is what I mean by every part of the industry. Yes, I think it, it, it's clearly an issue that that that, that works throughout. Uh, I, I suppose from from our perspective, and it was interesting your comment um, earlier with regard to to, to to life safety. Of course, that that has to be our primary objective to ensure that people can occupy and use a building effectively, but also in the event that there's a fire, they can evacuate safely. But one one of the points that we explored in the the previous podcast was that. Um, Whilst we seem to be real, uh, we seem to have seen massive a massive step change really in the number of deaths and injuries as a result of fire. Um, something that we're also seeing from a financial perspective is the the cost of fire to to the country increasing exponentially, really very quickly. Um, and whereas the number of fires are reducing, um, the cost associated with each one is increasing significantly. And 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 I suppose that's why when when we're talking about building design we're looking to encourage people to consider um in more detail the the kind of materials they're using um and to ensure that the the kinds of products that they're they're procuring and specifying are not only going to provide that essential life safety element but also ensure that there's some resilience to the building um you know particular concerns around modular construction or the use of SIPS panels with combustible um, insulation. And, you know, I suppose over time, as, as competencies increase and, and behaviours improve, that, you know, this may become less of an issue. But uh, at the moment, um, you know, a fire in a, in a building that's been designed and constructed in a modular fashion, um, if there's a significant fire there, even if it's just contained within the you know, within one or two of the uh, of the pods, it's going to be almost impossible to repair, and you know the building is lost, and the amenity is lost also to the to the community. So, from our perspective, I think we'd like to see a balance being struck between ensuring life safety, but also ensuring that there's some resilience to the building, because not only is the financial loss a significant one, but, you know, if it's a school building, if it's a village hall, if it's a, a community centre, if it's a residential care home, and that amenity is lost, it's not just lives in terms of death and injury that's affected, but, you know, a whole raft of other things come into play, I suppose. But underpinning all of that, you're quite correct. We've got to get the life safety element right. Um, and, procurement has to play a, an important part in that. When we were discussing um, one of the the earlier topics, uh, you made reference to um, the need for government to take some responsibility and appropriate action. And I know that you've been active in, in lobbying government around fire safety. But what do you think are the most important actions you would like to see policymakers taking in order to minimise fire risk, not only in high risk residential buildings, but but across the board? And, and how prepared do you think the industry is for, for cha the changes that are coming on the horizon? Well, I'd, I'd sort of ask, ask a question in response, I think, which yeah. is, Robert Jenrick last year said that this new building safety regime was going to be a sort of once in the generation change. And I have to ask Robert Jenrick and the government, why are you dealing with only one sort of building, a high rise residential building of a certain uh, nature? I mean, 
why are we not dealing with at least all buildings where there are vulnerable people? Um, I don't understand why they're excluding, for example, school buildings, um, hospitals, prisons, uh, low-rise residential. I, don't, I can't understand why you can say, well, the answer I have to, have to tell you I've heard is we have to start somewhere. And my view is that's fine if you've got a regime which says this year it's this, next year it's that, and five years from now it's every building that we create. That isn't what we're hearing. We're, we're starting with something very limited. And I am very, very concerned that that is where it would or could stay. In fact, what interesting, it's reminded me that the um, Chartered Institute of Building, the um, National Fire Chiefs Council, the RIBA and the, and the RICS Chartered Surveyors have all been calling, for example, for the installation of sprinkler systems in new and converted school buildings. I think it's a disgrace that they're not there. They've, Wales was way ahead 2016 asking for sprinklers. Um, Scotland is now uh, changing its systems. Why can we not go as far? I don't understand this at all. I don't understand why we're restricting uh, making, you know, huge changes to the way we do things, but restricting it to a very small percentage of our building stock. Mm, sure, I couldn't couldn't agree more. It, it's exactly the same um, approach that we've taken, failing to understand really why it's such a narrow um, uh, angle of attack, really, um, and why we aren't looking at the you know the built environment in the round, or, or maybe from a more um, risk focused perspective, because we, we we will end up with a you know with a two tier system two-tier legislative um, approach two-tier guidance approach um, because there will be those that fall under this this new regime and plenty of other premises that that, that, that don't um, and, and interesting also your note you know your comment about um, uh, about sprinklers in schools bb100 due out for consultation at some point shortly um, I just wonder what kind of surprises will be sprung on us there um, it'd be nice to think that mandatory provision of sprinklers is going to be the way forward but i think it incredibly unlikely um sadly mm. there, there, if, if i could come back in on that howard mm. um i think this is the same this is, this is the same topic material material if you like talking uh, as we did earlier about building regulation and i mean you you're probably aware that the riba might might group in particular have been calling since I think three days after the Grenfell Tower for major change to the big building regulations long before we had a um, James Judith Hackett's report that backed us up to be honest to say we really have to get rid of non that well, we have to make sure that we deal with um, combustible materials and we have to look at sprinklers we have to look at means of escape particularly means of escape which is still in my my book um, a disastrous lack of clarity and allows all sorts of terrifying buildings. There's still buildings going up 50 plus stories with a single means of escape mm. staircase. I, I just don't understand that either. But um, we have seen we have seen some progress. It's not that there's been no progress, but we are now four years pretty much after the Grenfell Tower fire, and we have got the intentions in the building safety bill we do understand what's what's happening and so there's a new regime coming in but it's about a very small area 
But the point is, we've been calling from the beginning that we need to have this approved document be made clear. So you can't game the system anymore. That's mm -hmm. still there. And we've seen some positivity around combustible materials and height provisions, but we still haven't seen a comprehensive overhaul of all the technical guidance for building regulations. And, you know, it's vital and urgent to provide the industry, the whole industry, with clear, unambiguous guidance that there is no way around. And I, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when that is what it was like. You know, we, we had, I worked in London, we had district surveyors, young architects like me were scared. Well, I won't use the word, but something less. <laughs> I know what you mean. Oh. And, you know, we used to go and see these people and they used to tear our plans to pieces and good on them. They knew what they were looking at. Uh, we didn't have people that were put into bat with with, with uh, desktop studies. And um, we need good practical knowledge of how buildings are put together to make it work again. And the basis of that is prescriptive regulation. We don't need a million regulations. We need good basic regulations. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I think that your experience is, is, is similar to mine. My, my background is in the construction industry and um, we, we were uh, uh, somewhat... Um, scared to a similar degree by by a clerk of works on site um it was both a a real positive to have somebody there that could help with any material changes that needed to be made and provide effective guidance and ensure that the client's wishes were being respected and met um whilst at the same time you you know you always knew that you had somebody looking over your shoulder making sure you were doing what you were meant to do properly um and um you know it's it's a real shame that we don't see um that kind of approach um any longer, but yeah, I suppose we are. But it, it, it also interesting from your from your comments there that there are so many organisations who've all been pushing the same message to government for so long. You know, RIBA, FPA, the ABI. You mentioned RICS, and many other groups have been explaining to the government that they do need to make these changes. But we've seen years and years and years gone by with no change to um, to building regulations, no change to approved document B, and uh, you know. You can you can only but I suppose surmise that for some reason there's a you know intransigence within government to make these changes for reasons that are are only clear to them and not to anybody else. Very sadly. Well, we 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 we, we do know um, that the coroner in the Lacanal House inquiry wrote uh, Rule Forty Three letters to the local authority and to mm -hmm. government saying the regulations are well, basically saying they're not fit for purpose and they're impenetrable, and you've got to change them. And to be honest, if that had been taken and acted on, we wouldn't have seen Grenfell Tower. No, it, sure. How sad, 72 people needn't have died. Yeah, most, most certainly. It, it really is. You know, we could we could dig into Lackanall House just as far as we have with Grenfell probably and, and come up with very, very similar conclusions. And, and like you say, it's a real shame that, you know that those recommendations weren't acted on at the time um but time's against us um so i'm, I'm going to move on to um, uh, to to our very last question um research that we've been under undertaking as part of our know your building campaign which these um uh, these podcasts form a form a part of have identified that that uk businesses are putting themselves at huge operational financial risk due to the lack of knowledge and understanding around fire safety and and i suppose this 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 reflects back to the conversation we were having earlier about life safety premises resilience 
um, property protection and such like. But in, in relation to your own architecture practice, how important is it that you work collaboratively with a building owner or the client so that they understand how the makeup of the building and the construction methods will impact them in the event of fire? It, it seems to me that you may not get um, as much of a steer from the client as, as, as you may like at times. Well, there are two different things here. One is, you know, what is your relationship with the client? At the smaller end of the scale, like my practice, we are the first port of call. The client will get hold of an architect to take over the project and help them through it. And we act with several different hats on, starting with client advisor. And there's no question that every client now has seen the impact of Grenfell, has listened to snippets of the inquiry over the um, various different social medias and the press and is to be honest worried worried about quality actually and worried about you know their investment being protected whatever the project is people don't want to spend money on things which they can not sell or, or won't be able to insure or etc etc so there is there is definitely a case if you are an architect working with a client from the early part of the project to just have a discussion as we all do about how the process is going to work, what their duties are, and clients, of course, are going to have duties, do have duties under CDM 15, but actually look at, you know, what they need to be thinking about as well, all the way through the project. And fire safety, believe me, it's not a big sell anymore. It is not a big, it's not difficult, but there are a lot of instances where there is no architect on a project or the architect is sort of fourth down from the client and the client speaks to um, financial advisors, for example, to start with, or different parts of the industry before they come to the architect and the architect is given a very small role, perhaps just getting a planning consent. So if it were that architects were sort of, you know, number two sitting side by side, client advisor with their client, I think it would not be difficult for us to be able to just take them through what they need to do to make sure that, for example, under the commercial, big commercial buildings, that they don't end up with some sort of massively expensive stranded asset. Um, and the same way with um, residential accommodation, they want to be able to sell on. So if, if you talk to them in, in language which they find understandable because it speaks to what they want from the project, Actually, it's 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 not it's not a difficult sell that, and I think that I think architects have a duty if they're in that position to talk about fire safety, in the same way as they talk about everything else within that project and from the beginning. Yeah, I I think I I you know I I hope that um, as as the the new responsibilities on the client become um, become clearer and more embedded that they start to begin to realise that they have a significant role to play um, and that they also begin to understand with, a, with, with support from um, architects like yourself that um, designing to the, the minimum life safety standard doesn't have to be the way to do things, that there are cost-effective ways that can also potentially build resilience into the, the premises as well as just ticking all the boxes and, and, and getting through the process and um, having a, a finished building which which just meets those minimum requirements. But I suppose with all of these things, it will, you know, the proof's in the pudding and um, we'll wait and see how it pans out. Um, Jane, that just leaves me to say 
thank you so much for for taking some time to to chat with me today. Um, it's been great to hear your insights, um, particularly on the role of uh, building a design professionals in the provision of fire safety, and and also those many other aspects that we've touched on. And and, and I wish we had uh, a little more time to explore some in um, in, in greater detail, but. Um, I suppose, you know, my reflections are it's been really good to see how your perspective and the architectural perspective is 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 so well aligned with, with so much as of what we've been able to unearth in our own research and, and also in our own behaviours within, you know, within the fire industry in looking to see effective change going forward. But um, once again, thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed today's conversation. To make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. Thank you for listening to the FPA's Assembly Point podcast, created as part of our Know Your Building campaign. To hear more episodes or for more information and resources on Know Your Building, which is helping building owners and managers reduce the risk of fire, please visit www.thefpa.co.uk and search Know Your Building.